Living Stones is our discipleship pathway we use to bring people to faith, grow people in the faith and their life, and how we raise up new leaders. 1 Peter 2.5 You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're exploring the first zone of discipleship, the camp, where a person learns to live reconciled with other people. There are six steps in this area. The second is evangelism, inviting others into God's community. Evangelism is illustrated by the person and tribe of Neftali. Have you ever received a gift that was not quite what you expected? One of the greatest jokes in The Lord of the Rings is when Galadriel, queen of the elves of the woods of Lothlorien, gives gifts to the fellowship members. She hands pieces of armor and treasures Uh, To Aragorn receives a sword sheath and the elf stone, Barmir a golden belt, Merry and Pippin silver belts, Legolas a new war bow, Gimli three strands of Gladriel's hair, Frodo is Sindriel's star, a sacred or magic crystal that gives off light, and Sam gets rope, a box of dirt, and a seed. Those are all things Sam can use because Sam is a gardener, But when the magical queen is handing out gold, silver, and weapons, it's hard to say thanks for the potting soil. I wonder if Neftali felt that way when his father Jacob was blessing all his brothers. He doesn't get a rebuke like some of the brothers, but at a first hearing, Neftali's blessing doesn't sound very powerful or masculine. Genesis 49.21 Neftali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Thanks a lot, Dad. Didn't have any war bows or silver belts left, huh? Neftali's blessing is very symbolic, as he's certainly not going to turn into a female deer. The longing of a deer for water is how a person is to long to meet with God. Psalm 42.1, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. But a person also has to be able to get to God. And in ancient Israel, people met with God in the high places like the top of a mountain or hill. To be like a deer is to be sure-footed when one walks to the high place to meet with God. Habakkuk 3.19 says, The Lord my God is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on the mountain heights. So part of Naphtali's blessing is meeting with God. Naphtali is not just called a deer, but specifically a doe. So his tribe will reproduce. Neftali is not a huge tribe, just a medium-sized one, so I don't see fulfillment in this tribe growing exceedingly large. Neftali's descendants bring deliverance to God's people and use their skills to bring more people into relationship with God. It's not biological offspring that's being promised, but bringing more people into God's community. Deliverance and drawing people to God is why we have made Neftali our illustration for evangelism. In the Bible, we don't have a Naphtali story that illustrates why Jacob gave him this blessing. But we do have two stories of his descendants who fulfilled this blessing, Barak and Huram. Barak shows deliverance. Barak is empowered for combat. It's a mistake not to see warfare in the fulfillment of Naphtali's blessing. In Judges chapter 4, we have the story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah from the tribe of Ephraim, is the judge, a prophet, and leader of the nation. 
When the nation is being oppressed by King Jabin of Canaan, his general, Sisera, and their 900 iron chariots, Deborah calls Barak from the tribe of Naphtali to be the general for the army of Israel. Barak's command is to deliver the people from the enemy. Barak wants two assurances to to accomplish this, troops and the presence of God. He calls 10,000 men from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and he calls Deborah, God's representative, to go with him, and she does. Barak engages in battle with General Sisera and utterly defeats the Canaanites. General Sisera flees the battle but is killed by a woman as he tries to hide. After this decisive battle, Judges 4.24 says, The power of the Israelites continued to increase against King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. The tribe of Naphtali, directed and empowered by God, delivered people from the enemy. Onward Christian Soldiers is one of the most unintentional, controversial hymns ever written. I remember singing this song as a child, and although in... Although it's in the hymn book, it was written as a children's processional song to sing as they marched to church. The symbolism was not for these children to grab guns and knives, but to engage in religious study, giving them the ability to struggle against sin and wickedness in the world. They were the future of what is known as the church militant, which means the body of Christians still living on earth, waging a spiritual war against evil not crusading into Jerusalem to kill Muslims. Professor Thomas Long wrote an article in 2012 titled The Absurd in Worship, in which he addressed the misunderstanding of onward Christian soldiers. He recounted a time when he was attending church service and they were singing this song. He looked around at the congregation, a small group of Christians and aging Christians, and he realized that Just as when the song was written, it would be absurd to think that people were sending their little children off to fight in a war of bullets. It's equally absurd to think of a group of senior citizens were hyping themselves up to go and do battle in a physical war. He said, we can't view the church as an entity able to militaristically destroy its enemies, but as one that makes no advance except that of love and has no enemy except that which undermines God's hope for human flourishing. The church is in battle, and we shouldn't be afraid to use military language that is all through the Bible. But the battle is spiritual for the deliverance of people. I think if we were less worried about being politically correct and clearly define our own message with clear and righteous actions, we should use this warrior language. And maybe we'd have more men want to be involved in church. Sure, it's a stereotype, but males generally are attracted to the idea of fighting and deliverance and winning. How do I engage in this spiritual battle of deliverance? It's my responsibility as a disciple of Jesus, not as a pastor. And it's the very command of Jesus to make a way for others to also find and approach God. Matthew 28, 18-20 Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is just like Barak, 
We have our troops and the presence of God. We are following our commander, Jesus, who said, The Spirit of the Lord is with me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 4, 18 and 19. This is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. We're not fighting other people, but working to deliver them. It is a spiritual battle, and because it's a spiritual battle, we use tools that are different than what the world uses to wage war. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, we, but are powerful through God for the, demolishing, for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is using words in our minds as well as our actions. There are three practical ways we can engage in this spiritual warfare of deliverance. First is making relationships. Every disciple should have at least one non-Christian they are doing life with and praying for. Who's your one? Second is speaking. We must learn to pray for people and have conversations that lead to spiritual topics. I encourage us all to use tools from Contagious Disciple Making, which is linked on our website. We can each facilitate a discovery Bible study, and when we can, share our personal redemption story and the good news of salvation through Jesus with someone without faith. Words are a weapon of warfare, not words of argument, but words of revelation and relationship. And it's when we pray people that we learn to do good for them. And the third is missions. Spend some time talking with our missionaries is one of the best ways I've been encouraged that I'm not the only one in the battle. And we've taught each other tools and tactics. The challenge here is to know what our battles are and to communicate that clearly, even when others may want to distort my battle or fight me. Barak is empowered for combat for deliverance. Our second descendant of Naphtali is Huram. Huram is empowered with creativity. Huram's story is in 1 Kings 7, 13-51. When Solomon was building the temple, he brought in Huram from the tribe of Naphtali to do some of the work. Huram is filled with wisdom and has understanding and knowledge in all kinds of bronze and metalwork. He's commissioned by Solomon to make decorations and tools for the temple of God. Huram made the pillars and capitals with all their decorations. He made the great bowl called the sea that the priests would use to clean. The, this bowl was as thick as a hand, and it rested on a stand of 12 bronze bulls, and it had wheels so it could be moved. Huram used hammering techniques to make the decorations of lions, bulls, cherubim, palms, wreaths, flowers. He knew how to cast bronze to make the bulls, basins, bowls. He worked with gold as well. The text says that he used so much bronze that they stopped counting how much. All the same elements that had been used in the tabernacle, 
The lampstand, the showbread table, the altar of incense were all remade in gold along with all the other utensils that the priests would need to do their work. It wasn't just ceremonial and artistic pieces that Harm crafted. He also made practical items like door hinges, pans, water carts, shovels, sprinklers, braces, and frames, lamps, and tongs, uh, pure gold ceremonial bowls. He made wick trimmers, uh, sprinkling basins, ladles, and fire pans. Haram made the entry gate into the temple and the utensils both for use outside of the temple for the sacrifices and purification and the tools for within the temple, including the Holy of Holies. Harm with his art and skill gave people purification and access to God. Anyone who brought a sacrifice, any priest who purified himself or entered the most holy place, owed their access to Hurom. His splendid artwork and craftsmanship drew people to God. That is the work and gifting of an evangelist, someone who uses creativity, wisdom, and skill to make ways for people to have access to God. One reason I like art and the humanities is because I can see throughout history how Christians have been creative in revealing God and salvation through Jesus. Evangelism is not just about verbally speaking about Jesus, but creatively presenting Jesus. I think people are still being creative today, but we need to make a distinction between creative ways of getting people to church versus creative ways of getting people to God. In the past, a bus ministry creatively got people to church. But being a caring school bus driver creatively gets people to God. A blood drive creatively gets people into the church building. Having conversations with people at the blood drive creatively gets people to God. Hosting a Girl Scout troop creatively gets people to church. Teaching Christian scouting material creative creatively gets people to God. Having an evangelist come and speak used to get people to come to church. Me being an evangelist with my friends and family creatively gets people to God. Jesus said in John 12:32, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. There's nothing more creative than God using his death on a cross to deliver people. We have to be both creative and skillful in telling others about Jesus. We can adapt our methods without compromising the message. And we need to know what we're doing. We need to be skillful. Every disciple should write down their personal redemption story, your testimony. It should be short enough to share briefly, to memorize, and probably contain the following information. What was your life like before Jesus? How did you come to faith in Jesus? And what is God doing in your life right now? For skill, every disciple should learn scriptures for sharing the good news of salvation through Jesus. While we should be adaptable to the situation, having some verses memorized that share salvation is a skill a disciple should have. On our website, we have links to Roman Road, ABCs of Salvation, the Wordless Book or Bracelet, Four Spiritual Laws, the Bridge Illustration, and the Gospel of Community. These are tools we can all access so that we can clearly introduce someone to Jesus. Having those basic skills solid 
allows me to better use my other skills and abilities to creatively draw people to Jesus. A warrior who is creative and trained doesn't have as much to fear when the battle comes. Barak is empowered for combat, for deliverance. Purim is empowered with creativity for the battle. The last empowerment we see from the Nephtali tribe is empowered not to compromise. When we look at the book of Joshua, it can sound divisive in light of modern politics of Israel. In Joshua, the Israelites are militarily taking over the promised land, an area which includes and surpasses the geography of modern Israel. Certain wicked cities, God instructs the Israelites to completely wipe out, but most of the others, they are to move out. We can't use an ancient book like Joshua to say that modern Jews can't claim Israel as a homeland because they took it over from the Canaanites. First, this is an ancient account. This is far older than the Romans taking over Italy or the Greeks taking over Greece. This area known as Canaan was not a nation, but separate independent cities and villages. It was only under Israel that the area became a unified political nation. With that said, even though under Joshua the land generally had been taken over, each tribe was to do the final securing of their territory. The tribe of Naphtali was given an inheritance in the north. Judges 1.33 tells us that Naphtali did not completely secure their land. It says, Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land. But the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath served as their forced labor. The people of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were not to be killed, but they were supposed to be moved out. Instead, the Naphtali tribe t chose to live among these Canaanites and force them into some level of subjugation or slavery. Instead of taking their full inheritance and multiplying God's people, or inviting the Canaanites to become part of God's covenant people, they were called to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, they chose to live with the Canaanites, as long as the Canaanites did what they said and served their needs. In some sense, this sounds partly okay to our modern ears. Hey, they didn't displace the indigenous people, but instead live with them, not wiping out their culture. The downside is that they put the people to forced labor, which is only slightly better than some of United States history. To the Naphtali tribe, this compromise seems okay because they didn't have to do battle and they got free labor out of it. But God wanted those other people out. Actually, that's incorrect. God wanted the gods of the Canaanites out because the God of Israel was engaged in a spiritual battle. Choosing to compromise and live with the Canaanites meant, one, there was now slavery and oppression in the land. Under God's design, the people of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath might have been displaced, but they would have been free. Second, they're now living among a people that serve other gods. And it is this temptation of serving other gods that many times leads to the judgment of Israel by God. This compromise is, to me, part of the heart of Christian nationalism in the United States today, where some Christians or Christian groups are willing to be in league with what would normally be a group to separate from. 
but we keep them close and support them because they do what we say and give us political power without having to engage in the real battle, the spiritual battle to deliver people into relationship with God. When gay marriage was first proposed in California, Christians partnered with Mormons and Muslims to fight against it. We had never partnered with Mormons and Muslims for anything else, not to feed the hungry, not to clothe the poor, not to shelter the homeless. But as long as they were against something that we were against, we partnered. That victory was short-lived. I heard the similar argument when Donald Trump first ran for president. Can't vote for Clinton, and I don't like Trump either, but I'm voting for the nominations on the Supreme Court. Well, the evangelical right got the nominations on the court. It was at the cost of our reputation, and I wonder how long the victory will last. It's not just for political power where the church has compromised. Last May, the Evangelical Lutheran Church just elected their first transgender bishop. It was a work of inclusiveness that compromises what the Bible says God intended for humanity to be. The track record of denominations that have compromised in the area of God-defined humanity and relationships are all in decline. But compromise in these areas makes it easier to get along with the world. It's not that we have to completely separate ourselves from the world, like the Amish. We have to be in the world in order to deliver people into the kingdom of God. However, we have the power to not compromise the kingdom, especially not to attain the power or ease within the world. We're supposed to do battle. We're supposed to deliver people from the forces of evil. That's not hate. It's not hateful to say to someone with homosexual desires, God has something better for you, especially when I say the same thing to a single straight person dealing with lust. But the world may not understand that. Jesus said in John 15:19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. When I refuse to compromise, sometimes people may take that as me making war with them individually. That's why relationships are important. It takes a relationship for someone to understand, I can't compromise with you, but I still love you. And it takes a battle mindset to stand uncompromisingly when someone still chooses to make war with me, even though the battle I'm fighting is spiritual. But we have endurance for this battle. In John 17:15, Jesus prays to the Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Neftali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. I bet you didn't realize before today that is a battle language. Disciples are empowered for combat, for deliverance, empowered with creativity for the battle, and empowerment not to compromise. So that's the evangelism living stone. Neftali is blessed with offspring. Upon engaging in the battle of personal evangelism and deliverance of people, the discipleship of Hartwood Church receives a clear court stone. Don't just invite people to church. Invite them to lunch. 
Invite them to your table or patio. Invite them into your life. Invite them to discover Jesus with you. And be there for them and the things that they invite you to. The church God asks us to build is not our building, but people. Our prayer today is taken from Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim to others that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from the east, west, north, and south. Let them see the Lord's works, his wondrous works, that they may cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he bring them out of their distress and guide them to the harbor they were longing for. Then they will give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. Lord, our shepherd, Jesus built his church and commands us to go and make disciples. We thank you for the lives that we are able to touch. We ask for the prepared souls, the empowered harvesters, and the physical and spiritual resources necessary to do the work you call us to do. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go forth to live as disciples, serving God with your whole being, knowing that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great exploits in God's name.